Welcome to Linworth Road Church, helping people become fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission. Visit linworthroadchurch.com to learn more. Again, good morning. If this is your first Sunday uh, with us. We have been in a series entitled Grow, Moving On to Maturity. And, and in this series, we have been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, for those of, of you who have been with us the last month or so, you'll know that, uh, that we've been covering some pretty tri- tricky topics and themes. And to be honest, today is, is in some ways no different. Now, today's passage is not uh, nearly as awkward as the one was I did about a month ago on sex and sexual morality, but, but in some ways it's no less tricky to navigate. And so with that said, let me just pray and invite the Lord to, to join us, to to open our eyes and to to help us in this time. So join me in prayer. Father, Lord, we are in need of your grace this morning. Lord, I am in need of your grace. God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to know. And and would you open your word to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, then shame on you. You came to church. What were you doing? Not bringing a Bible. Uh, just kidding. Uh, if you want to use one of our pew Bibles, 1 Corinthians is on page 956. And while you're turning there, I want to ask a, just a series of questions. And, and the first is this. Have you ever found yourself disagreeing or found yourself uh, with a different conviction from that of a brother and sister in Christ? Like, have you ever been convinced of the rightness of something or, or convinced even of the wrongness of something to but then have found out that, that other Christians, other believers who also love Jesus, who, who love Christ and are in his church, have you ever found that they disagree with your conviction? Well, I know I, I, know I have. And, and if you haven't, then just wait, because uh, most likely you will meet somebody who, who disagrees with you. And in fact, you may find that you disagree with me by the end of this time. But what I want to try to do this morning is to walk us through this chapter, chapter 8, and then we'll also dip into a little bit of chapter 10, and I want us to try to discern what is going on. What issue is Paul addressing? And then from there, I want to try to bridge the gap to our context and see what we can learn in this matter that will help us grow and mature in the Lord. But before we read uh, this section, I need to set up the context a bit. Well, first off, you'll, you'll know that if you've been with us that the first six chapters, Paul is addressing some things that had been reported to him in the church. A, a report had come back about some problems, about some sin that had gone in the church. And so those first six chapters, he is addressing that. Well, then in chapter 7, verse 1, he switches in. He begins to address some specific questions that the Corinthian church had wrote him and, and, and apparently a previous letter. And so that's why in verse 1 of chapter 7 he says, Now concerning matters about which you wrote. And then from there for a whole chapter he goes on to talk about marriage and singleness and divorce. But then in chapter 8 he, he changes topics and he says, Now concerning food offered to idols. Again, before we can, can go on to read what he writes, I, I need you to understand what exactly he's addressing and why. And and so by now you'll know that Corinth was a, a pagan city inside of a pagan culture. It, it was not primarily Jewish. And in this uh, city, and like a lot of pagan cities there, they had a temple. 
and they had pagan priests who, who represented their false gods to them in the temple. And, and so these priests in, in Corinth, they had uh, a little bit of a scam going on. And in fact, I heard one uh, guy compare them to the mafia. And that's because here's what they would do. Let's say that you needed something from the gods, like, like maybe you were a farmer and you needed the gods to, to bless your crops this year, and, and maybe you needed them to send rain. So what you would do is you would go out into your flock, and you would pick the best animal out of your flock, and you would then take that to the priest. And so let's say you picked the goat, and so you take your goat, and you give it to the priest. Well, then the priest would take your goat, and he would essentially separate it out into three different parts. And, and with one part, he would take what was mostly made up of inedible parts of the goat, and he would burn it, and, and offer it as a sacrifice to appease the gods. But then he would take uh, the second part of the goat, and they would then serve that meat in the temple, uh, at the temple restaurant, if you will, or, or at certain feasts that would happen at the temple. And the thing about feasting in the temple is it, too, was considered an act of worship. But here's where their plan gets brilliant. They would then take that third leftover piece of meat, and they would slip it out the back door, and they would then sell it in the meat market. Uh, out on the streets. And so here's why this guy compared it to the mafia, because here's the scam. Theoretically, you could, you could go to the priest one day, take your goat, they take it, they cut it up, they burn part of it, and then you decide, you know, I'm going to sit here and eat lunch in the temple. And so you go and, and you sit down, and then you pay to eat a third of your own goat. And then let's say you're, you're like, well, on the way home, I need to get some goat roast for dinner. And so you decide to stop off in the meat market and, and get some meat, and so you end up buying back another third of your own goat. So it's a brilliant. This plan's brilliant. I, I said earlier, this will probably get me in trouble, but it's a little bit like when our government taxes our income, and then with the little bit they leave us, then when we go and buy things, they tax us again, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of d- double dipping and triple dipping, and, and the same was true with these priests in Corinth. And so these Corinthian believers, they wrote Paul to ask, What are we supposed to do about this whole thing? And so if you look down at verse 1, he writes this. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If you look back down at verse 1, you'll see that the phrase, all of us possess knowledge. And, and if you look closely, you'll see that it's actually in quotation marks. And the reason for that is that it was most likely another slogan, or it was a phrase that was going around the Corinthian church. And it was most likely being tossed around by these so-called stronger brothers or, or stronger sisters. And, and the thing you need to understand here is this. This group, these so-called stronger brothers... This is the audience that Paul is primarily addressing in this chapter. He, he is talking to the weak as well, but, but he's primarily addressing these stronger brothers. And what Paul does here in these first three verses is this. He is exposing what often happens when, when, we, when someone knows something. Or worse, when someone thinks that they know something that others don't. In other words, when you possess knowledge that others don't have... You, if you are not careful, you can get puffed up. You can become prideful and arrogant towards the one who does not know. And so Paul is from the outset trying to show us that that love is far more superior 
to knowledge. You see, there's always this danger with knowledge that it can lead to you being puffed up to lead you into pride. But, but there is no danger with love. Love builds one another up. And so that, you know, that's right on with what he'll say later on in chapter 13, the, the famous love chapter. In that chapter he says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And it's important that we get this because it is really at the heart of this chapter. Paul is calling us as believers to live our lives by a law of love. To, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to consider them as more important than ourselves. And, and even to consider them as more important than our freedoms. But then look what verse, uh, Paul does in verse 4. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." And so Paul here, he is affirming this knowledge that the stronger brothers had. And, and part of the knowledge they had was this. They knew that an idol had no real existence. They knew that, that, that they were nothing, that that block of wood shaped into an idol was really just a block of wood, that, that there was really only one God, and that's God the Father. And, and so Paul is saying, you're right, stronger brothers. It's, it is true, false gods, false idols, they are nothing. They don't actually exist. But he continues in verse 7 by saying, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former associations with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And I, I put up here also the NLT. I like the way it said it. It said, however, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as, a, as the worship of real gods and their weak consciences are violated. And so what is Paul doing here? He is introducing uh, to us a new category, a new segment in the Corinthian church. And, and that group uh, was this. It was, a, it was a group of people who were in the church who did not yet possess knowledge about idols being fake. And they, they didn't understand that there was really only one true God. You know, it's sort of like when uh, your kids are convinced that there's a monster in the closet, right? You, you as the adult, you subjectively know that monsters do not exist, and therefore you know that there's no monster in the closet. Well, as a couple in our church found out recently, there might not be a monster in the closet, but there might, might be a man with a ski mask and a crowbar trying to rob you, uh, but there are no monsters, right? That's not funny to you? What's, what's going on here? Yet your kid, he, he doesn't yet know that monsters don't exist. For them, the monster does exist, and no matter how many times you try to tell them that it doesn't. And so because of that, these weaker believers, they didn't yet possess this knowledge. And, and because they, they used to go through this whole offering meat to idols in the temple thing, and so they were confused. They didn't know what to do. Because for them, when they ate the meat, they felt like they were still worshiping an idol. In other words, you could, they could not eat the idol meat 
without recalling the past religious associations that the meat had for them. You see, they were worried that the meat had become tainted and, and that by eating it, they were defiling themselves. Now, these believers, they, they would have known that, that worshiping idols was wrong. And so because of that, they would have known that, that, to, to, that they were not to take an animal to the temple to be sacrificed. They would have known to participate in idol worship, but where they were struggling was this. What are we to do about the food that's in the meat market? And so continuing on in verse 8, Paul writes this. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, least I make my brother stumble. Okay, so first off, Paul, he, he comes right off the bat here in verse 8 and says, Look, stronger brothers, you're right. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But, but take care that that right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, Paul seems to be telling them, look, stronger brothers, you can be theologically correct about an issue, and yet you still have an obligation to look out for and to love the weaker or less mature Christians in your life. Yes, theology is important. It's extremely important. The Apostle Paul himself went to great lengths to defend and to protect right theology and doctrine, and yet that does not give us a license to run people over. You know, for me, I, I really struggled to, to get this early on in my walk with the Lord. I, I was, you could say, the self-appointed theology police. Like, I was convinced it was my job to sniff out any wrong thinking and to correct it, and oftentimes to correct it harshly. And so I would find myself in these theological debates with, with other Christians, and, and in those conversations, I would find myself getting mad at them, and even starting to dislike some of them. And I was a little bit like, I want to show you a quick video of this guy that, that uh, when I saw the clip, I thought, you know, that's how I was. And, and uh, so it's very short, it's just 15 seconds, but. So, I, you know, that's how I was. I took myself way too seriously. You know, he's a volunteer sheriff's deputy. What is that? And, and here I was, the theology police. And, and, you know, to be honest, it was a real problem in my life. I think it, at times it, it made me a really bad life group leader. You know, we would be in conversations and discussing a topic, and, and somebody would say something that I perceived to be inaccurate, and I would correct them in front of everyone and, and even embarrass them. I think at times it made me a bad friend because I, I would do this with my friends and, and you know, I'd get so heated in the conversation that, that I would start to dislike them. And it, and it took the Lord, to, it took the Lord some, taking me through some various trials and some suffering to, to begin to help me to realize this truth. That yes, 
He wants me to know and to believe right doctrine and theology. But no, he does not want me to do those things at the expense of loving my fellow Christian. I think the other thing that started to factor in that, that kind of woke me up to this was I, I, I was starting to live more of life and, and I started to realize that both life and theology aren't as black and white as I had once thought. That sometimes life and theology are a little bit messy and things can be a little bit gray at times. Now before we move on, we need to do some work to understand what Paul means when he says weak and, and also what he means by a, becoming a stumbling block. Or to make my brother stumble. Now before I study this passage out, I, I think I, I, I a little bit misunderstood what Paul meant by weak Christians. And also what he meant by causing someone to stumble. And I've hit on this a little bit already, but, but I want to explain it farther. The weak brother or sister is a Christian who is uh, immature or who is maybe unsure about certain things. And, and the word weak, it can be translated as powerless or impotent. And so as you think about those descriptions of weak, powerless, impotent, immature, are any of those things you would want to have said of you? Or, or th- ways that you would want your life characterized? Well, the answer is no. You don't want to be those things. And, and so because of that, I heard one guy explain it this way. He, he said, the weak brother or sister is like someone who has the stomach flu. You don't want to be sick. You don't want to be throwing up all over the place. But you are. You, you can't help it. And in the same way, spiritually weak people, when, when they, they are like people who have the stomach flu, they, they don't want to have it, they just do. They are powerless at the moment to change. And here's the important thing to get. The weak person is the person who doesn't understand the freedoms that we now have in Christ. And they're essentially living their lives uh, like a legalist. They are unintentionally adding rules and regulation where God has not given them. And, and even where God has given us freedom. You see, they are, they are tempted to take the gray areas, the, the areas where we perhaps have freedom, and they're tempted to take them and make them into black areas. And, and so they, they add all of these rules and regulations into their life where they don't need to. And to be honest, it's a terrible way to live life. But, but the point is this, if they are truly a weaker brother, they can't help it. Just like the Corinthian Christians, they couldn't help that they, that they stumbled when they ate the meat. But I think it's important here to mention this, that the goal is not for the person to stay weak. Just like when you're sick, the goal is not to continue to have the stomach flu. No, you want to do those things that will enable you to get better, to enable you to get strong. So what do you do? You, you do the brat diet, right? Bananas, rice, applesauce, toast. What you don't do is Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC, right? That would be a bad idea. You know, I, my family has made fun of me over the years because, uh, and friends too, I just, I'm one of those people who would get the stomach flu like three times a year. You know, I was just kind of always throwing up, you know. And uh, a few, maybe a year and a half ago, a couple here in the church introduced my wife and I to these things called uh, kefir grains. Has anyone ever heard of this? Apparently not. Well, let me explain what they are. Uh, kefir grains are uh, these really weird things that look like cottage cheese. And what you do is you, you add uh, milk into them into a jar. And, and what you do is you let the jar sit on the counter for about 24 hours. And, and then you strain off the grains. And, and that, that liquid that is left for you to drink is a very strong um, liquid that is full of probiotics, which are really good for 
uh, your gut. And, and so for the last year and a half, my wife and I have been drinking uh, some frozen smoothies with this stuff in it. And it's been amazing. I, I don't think I've been sick uh, in this way since we've started doing it. And I'll say that and I'll probably go home and throw up all over the place. But uh, <laughs> hopefully not. But, it, you know, the point is this. I've been doing uh, the things to try to get strong in an area where I have been uh, weak in the past. And so I want to be clear here. Paul is not saying, let's enable the weak to stay weak forever. But what he is saying is this, that growing and maturing in Christ is a process. And we can't force or rush weaker brothers and sisters in that process. And on this same idea, D.A. Carson writes this, Of course, on the long haul, one hopes and prays that weak Christians will, by increased understanding of right and wrong, derived from careful reading of Scripture, transform their weak consciences into robust, strong consciences. There is no particular virtue in remaining perennially weak. For that simply indicates that one's moral understanding has not yet been sufficiently shaped by the Word of God. And so that's what it means to be weak. But, but let's look at this second idea. What does it mean to be a stumbling block or to cause a brother to stumble? Well, again, I, I think this is where a lot of misunderstanding or at least misapplication has occurred, uh, both in my own life and, and I think in, sometimes in, in different churches. You see, I thought that making my brother stumble meant do everything I could to not offend my weaker brothers. But that is not what is meant by stumble. Stumble does not mean don't offend, but rather it means don't cause your brother or sister to sin. Do you see the difference there? Paul's not saying limit your freedoms so as to not offend someone, but rather limit your freedoms if they're going to lead someone to violate a conviction. And therefore, because they violate a conviction, they they think something is wrong, you're leading them into sin. And the reason we know this is because, look back down in verse 10, Paul defines for us what it means to cause a brother to stumble. He says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. And so again, if we go back to the, the analogy of the stomach flu, if when you're sick... You, when you have the stomach bug, you know that it's a bad idea for you to eat Taco Bell. I mean, it's probably always a bad idea to eat Taco Bell, but, but it's definitely a bad idea when you have the stomach flu. And, and you know that. And then all of a sudden, here I come, and I, I say, hey, man, let's go get some Taco Bell. Let's, let's go get some chili cheese burritos or, or some double-decker Taco Supremes. And you're like, no, man, I, I, I can't. I have the stomach bug. I I, I, I know that if I do it, I will get sick. And I, no, man, you're, you're fine. It's, I, I can tell you've overcome this. You're, you're, you're just being immature. Come on, let's go eat. And so I talk you into doing something that you know for you is wrong. Well, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to end up throwing up all over the place, right? And that's what Paul's kind of saying here in verse 10. He's saying, look, stronger Christians, do not force your weaker brother and sister in Christ to violate a conviction. Or something that their conscience is telling them is wrong. And so what does that mean? If you have the stomach flu, should you eat Taco Bell? No. In the same way, if you think a certain action is sin, should you go ahead and do it? No. If, if a weak Christian is convinced that eating meat offered to idols is wrong, should we go ahead and eat it anyway? No. Should we stronger Christians try to force them to do so? No. No. 
Because Paul just said that if we force them, then we are actually sinning against that person, and therefore we're sinning against Christ. And so because of the seriousness of this, Paul concludes the chapter by saying, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, least I make my brother stumble. Now I'm hoping to try to clarify what Paul means uh, here when we try to apply these things. But for now, I need us to skip ahead to chapter 10 and starting in verse 23. And in this, this is where Paul, he picks back up his thoughts on meat offered to idols. And I think he lays out for us some general guidelines for growing in and for navigating the gray areas in our life. So starting in verse 23, he writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but, I, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay, so if you were here with us when we went through 1 Corinthians 6, you'll, you'll remember that I pointed out the phrase, all things are lawful. It, it was another one of these slogans or sayings that was going around the church. And so Paul here, he quotes it again, but then he qualifies it. And he says, all things are lawful? Yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful? Yeah, but not all things build up. And then he kind of gives this overarching principle. He says, let no one seek his own good, but only the good of his neighbor. And so if we would stop right there, if we would close up our Bibles and, and end on that note, we would most likely conclude that Paul, uh, is, he's, he's sided with the weaker Christian. He's become unbalanced and, and he's only concerned for weaker brothers. And that essentially we as Christians should live our lives as if we have no liberties or freedoms in Christ. But look what he does in verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And so what does Paul do here? Well, if you have noticed, Paul, both in chapter 8 and here in chapter 10, he is bouncing back and forth from making arguments that support the weak to then making arguments that support the strong. Now, we may be tempted to think that, that Paul is contradicting himself or, or that he's just so confused in his argument, he's not sure what he's trying to say. But, but really, I think Paul is seeking to walk a very fine line. He's seeking to strike that perfect balance. You know, on the one hand, you have love, but then there's freedom. So love, freedom, freedom, love. It's a little bit like grace, truth, truth, and grace. They, we, we have to walk this balance, walk this line. But what else does he do here in this passage? Well, he, he clearly makes a judgment on what they should do as far as eating meat that's sold in the marketplace. You know, if you remember when I started, I said the priest would do essentially three things with the meat. And, and so again, the Corinthians knew that they shouldn't take an animal to the temple to be sacrificed. And, and some scholars and commentators have argued that, that earlier on in 10, he, he, he tells them not to even eat at the temple. But but what about this third category? Paul says, go ahead and buy and eat the meat in the marketplace. 
You know, he's saying there's no reason for you to put on your white coat and, and to become the FDA and, and inspect the meat for idol worship. No, just, just eat the meat. And then he goes on from there to give some direction about what we are to do if someone invites you over, particularly if an unbeliever invites you over. And, and he says, if you want to go, then go. Eat and, but eat whatever they put out for you. Don't worry and don't interrogate them about where they bought the meat from. However, if, if while you're at the dinner party, someone leans over and they say, hey, by the way, I, I know that they bought this meat and it was offered to idols. Well, then Paul says, for that person's sake, because most likely that person is a weaker brother, don't eat it. But then you've got to love what he does in 29 and 30, just to make sure that he's not being misunderstood. He says, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced for, uh, because of that for which I give thanks? And so just in case someone might misinterpret or misunderstand what he is saying, he very strongly clarifies what he means. And then he closes this section with a few final principles. He says in verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that many may be saved. And then in 11.1 he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay, so wow, we have covered a lot of verses here, but I want us to try to pull back and see if there is a way for us to apply some of these principles to our day and to our context. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I think it's pretty difficult to find a direct correlation between food offered to idols and, and any modern day equivalent. And so because of that, I'm a little hesitant to, to pick a gray area and, and work our way through it. I mean, where a lot of people go when they get to this passage is to talk about alcohol. And, you know, I could do that and I could try to lay out for us some, some principles in relation to that. But I'm just not sure it'd be that helpful because, again, it's not a, a direct correlation. So instead, I thought I could just lay out for us some general rules for navigating the gray areas or those disputable areas in the Christian life. Now, if you're ever in trouble figuring out what kind of things could, could, could fall into this category... I thought I'd share with you a list, uh, just a list that I came up. There's, there's probably a million more that I didn't uh, write down. But, but the thing about this list is this. There are people on both sides of, of most of these who love Jesus and who are genuine followers of Christ. And so I just want to caution us here to, to be careful how we talk about Christians with whom we disagree with on these matters. You know, I, I think this is something that I have been guilty of in my life, of talking bad about those with whom I disagree on, on non-Bible-related uh, issues. And, you know, I, I, to be honest, I've, I've been a little disappointed with, with churches in Columbus, and, and uh, I'm not saying necessarily this church, but, but just churches in Columbus, as I've heard other Christians talk about Zenos Church. And, and, you know, again, there's some things that we might disagree with them, and, and we certainly do things a little bit different. But, you know, I've, I lived across the street from one of their pastors. I've attended their conferences. And I know that that church loves Jesus Christ and that that church is seeking to spread the gospel around Columbus. And so, you know, I just want to caution us. Let's be careful how we talk about other Christians. But with that said, here's, here's a little bit of a list. Alcohol, smoking, secular music, certain types of movies or movies at all, caffeine, tattoos, 
yoga, yoga pants, <laughs> two-piece swimsuits, piercings, letting your kids trick-or-treat, letting your kids play sports on Sundays, dating, baking a cake for a gay wedding, and the list could go on and on, right? So again, how are we to think through these things, and how are we to treat those with whom we disagree and with, with those who we might cause to stumble? Well, I think the first place you have to start is by discerning if something is a sin or not. And so I think you need to ask yourself a series of questions to discern that. And the first question I would ask is this, does the Bible speak against it? In other words, does the Bible clearly say, do not do this, or, you know, this is okay? For example, the Bible, uh, you know, adultery is not a disputable matter. It's, it's not a gray area in the Christian life. It, the Bible very clearly deals with it. But then the second question you need to ask yourself is this. Okay, it's, it's maybe the Bible doesn't speak to it, but does it break the law? For example, if you're, you know, I, I would say that the Bible teaches that drinking in moderation is, is, uh, is an okay thing for a Christian. But if you're not 21... If you're an 18-year-old or a 16-year-old, then drinking is wrong because it breaks the law. But then I think you need to go on and ask yourself a third, set, or a third question, and that is this. What are my preferences, and am I aware of them? In other words, you need to make sure that this thing isn't a non-sinful behavior that simply annoys you. And, you know, for example, there, there are some who have argued that that certain types of music or certain beats in music are, are sinful. And I haven't done enough research on it, but, I, but my initial reaction is this, that I, I tend to think that maybe it's just something that annoys you. Uh, like, I'm not sure that, that drums necessarily and of themselves are sinful. And, you know, for like for me, like, I, I don't know, who are these people who like screamo music, like the radio U-type music? Like, I just do not get that. But I don't think it's sinful. I just, it's my preference. And so I want to be careful as I talk about those things with, with people who are on the other side that I'm not trying to categorize it into the wrong category. But then lastly, you need to ask yourself, does this thing, even if it is amoral, so even if this thing is not sinful, does me doing it lead me or tempt me to sin? In other words, uh, the golden corral, you guys know what that is? <laughs> The Golden Corral is morally neutral. At least I think it is. I don't know. Maybe it's not. But, but I think it's morally neutral. But does you going to an all-you-can-eat buffet cause you to commit gluttony? Well, if it does, then you should probably not go to the Golden Corral. And so I think we need to, to ask ourselves and do some heart checks on these questions. But then once you've properly discerned what is a sin and what is not, I think the next thing you need to do is to form a conviction about those gray areas where Scripture does not speak. Now, I'm going to be honest, to do this well requires some time, some research, and some self-evaluation. You know, it's going to require you to, to do some heart checks to see, how does this thing affect me when I do it? For example, in, in preparing for this teaching, I, I was trying to discern, is there an equivalent topic to food offered to idols? And, and the closest one that I could come up with was yoga. And the reason I thought of that was this. Here you have this thing that is a religious act which for some is a way in which they worship and connect with their idols. And yet at the same time, you have Christians all over America who participate in it, but you also have Christians who have strongly come out and denounced believers doing it. And so what are we to do with that? 
And so this week, I, you know, because to be perfectly honest, self-disclosure here, I have done some yoga in P90X. So I, I had never questioned it before. And so I thought, well, I need to do some research on this. And so I began to, to read and research out what is yoga? Where, where did it originate from? What is its intentions? And then I started to read some of the arguments that believers have wrote against doing it. And you know, to be honest, I'm still in that process of forming a conviction about it. But I want to urge you to do the same on any area, and, and, and particularly if you participate or, that, or you advocate for it. And so if you're, if, you're gonna, if you're looking at a gray area of the Christian life, and you're participating and advocating for it, I think you have a, an obligation to research it out. You know, if you're going to take a picture of you doing it and put it on Instagram or Facebook, you better make sure that it's in the right category, that it's not something that is a sin or, or that it's going to cause somebody to stumble. Okay, so once we have checked the Bible and once we have confirmed that it's not a sin, and once you've taken the time to develop a conviction about it, what do you do when you find that your involvement in this thing causes a fellow brother or sister of yours in Christ to stumble? I think the first thing we need to understand here is this. Paul, I don't think, you may disagree, but I don't think Paul was saying set aside our freedoms for some theoretical or some omnipresent Christian phantom who's just always lurking in the background waiting to, to catch you. You know, for example, if I, if I have formed a conviction that it's okay for me to drink alcohol in moderation, <clears throat> should I be constantly worried that if I walk out of Kroger with a six-pack that I'm going to unknowingly cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble? You know, like I, I walk out and they just, I don't see them, but they see me. And therefore, if I, should I be worried about causing them to sin and sinning against them in Jesus? Well, I don't think that's what Paul's saying, you know. I, I don't think I need to, to, to dress up and be incognito and, and wear a hood. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I grew this beard, so you won't recognize me when I do this. But, but no, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Rather, what Paul is saying is this. In a specific instance, with a specific individual, the law of love says that we give up our freedoms for the sake of that person. Paul was not giving us a blanket statement about giving up our freedoms for all time and for all people. I mean, do you guys realize that according to some figures, you can Google this, it's insane. I'm, I'm sure it's, the number's off, but, but there are some figures that say that there are 41,000 different Protestant denominations. And so if Paul was giving us a blanket statement, we would all really struggle to live this out consistently. And commenting on this point, one author wrote this. Some denominations believe that watching plays and movies, regardless of rating, is a sin. Will we all agree to never attend a movie or play again? Or to watch only the news and educational programs that don't involve dr dramatizations on the television? If not, what happens when someone who believes it is a sin decides to attend a movie because he saw us doing it? Some denominations believe it is a sin to wear makeup. Will we all agree to forego makeup? Some denominations believe it is a sin for women to cut their hair or to wear jeans. Will we all conform to this regulation on the off chance that we might be imitated by someone who really thinks that they shouldn't do these things? What about wearing shorts, mixed bathing, wearing jewelry, buying anything on Sunday, playing cards, playing dominoes, listening to James Taylor, using Celtic words for bodily functions instead of Latin words? And the list could go on and on. 
He, he ends by saying this. Practically every part of our culture that we take for granted is considered a sin by some segment of Christianity. Are we prepared to alter every aspect of our behavior in deference to weaker brothers who have problems with the things that we do every day? And so again, I don't believe that God is asking us to limit our freedoms because of someone, somewhere. No, rather we limit them in order to love those who are actually in our lives who are struggling, who are weaker in their faith. And to be honest, if you're not willing to set aside a freedom for the sake of a weaker brother, then you are not loving them. And most likely you have made this freedom into an idol. So in closing here, I just want to, uh, to say this. You know, for some of you, the thought of having to give up uh, freedoms or liberties for the sake of another maybe feels unfair or unjust. Maybe even feels a little un-American. You know, us Americans, we really like our rights and freedoms. I mean, you know, we're going to, you know, pry my cold dead fingers kind of a thing. And, and, but I want you to realize this. If this is hard for you, I want you to realize this. Jesus Christ was the most free being of all time. If anyone had the right to demand or to impose their rights and freedoms, it was him. And yet, Jesus laid down and even gave up his rights and freedoms by coming in human flesh. And that's what Philippians 2 talks about. He, he came in human flesh and he died on a cross so that we could experience the freedom of having our sins taken away. And so if Jesus has done that for us, Ought we not also to give up our freedoms when necessary in order to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, Paul, he finishes his argument on this topic in 11.1 by saying, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And the next couple of weeks as we walk through chapter 9 and and the rest of 10, we're going to see how Paul gave up some of his rights for the sake of others and for the sake of spreading the gospel. Uh, But for now, let's close in prayer. Father, Lord, we need your help. God, we need your help to think through these difficult things. God, we need your grace to be able to love our brothers and sisters in Christ well. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you set aside some of your rights and some of your freedoms to come for us and to, to save us and Lord, I just pray you would give us the grace and the truth to be able to do the same for our brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you. I pray now that you would bless uh, these tithes and offerings to you. I pray that you would use them for your kingdom, to grow your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening and joining our mission. For more content or to learn more about us, visit linworthroadchurch.com.